Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Mint Mobile. Cut your wireless bill to as little as 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 356, To the Death. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we team up and make it our mission to explore every part of Star Trek, no matter what the danger, to find the morals, meanings, and messages buried within. This week, to the death! Hey, whoa, whoa. Settle down. Settle down. How about we just do a podcast? I could use the job security. Oh, I mean, I mean, we're covering the episode to the death. Not that you and I will podcast to the death. Good. All right. Very good. Well, John will have trivia for you in a moment. But first, I would love to tell you how to reach us. To the death. Or, you know, just if our listeners want to send us a friendly note. Which is fine, too. Mission Log relies on your participation. So that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter, where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Tell others about us there. And if you're inclined to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful and we'll share those in a future supplemental. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, to the trivia! To the trivia, to the death. This episode was written by Ira Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf. And this is a really interesting order in which this story came about. It was Robert who wanted to do a story that went more in depth about the Jim Hadar and added to how threatening they are overall. So, they were really in search of the plot elements to tell the story, where the Jim Hadar and the Federation team up. And just throwing out a ton of ideas, some of which made their way into later episodes. So in this case, it was devising the plot to simply fit the character dramas that they wanted to tell. This episode was directed by LeVar Burton. Of course, he needs no introduction. But it was interesting to read his comments on directing this episode. Uh, he calls it, his worst day of production on anything up to that point, specifically one day on the set of this show, they were on location. You had one full day of location shooting at Griffith Park, uh, specifically at the Bird Sanctuary, which is further north into the park from, uh, well, from where the observatory is, if you're looking at it on a map. Think about it. You have a lot of actors in complex prosthetic makeup, two fight sequences. You're on location. You're losing light. It was just a nightmare overall. He absolutely 
drove himself crazy shooting that. But they got it all done. They got everything done in that day. Long day, but they did it. This episode, incidentally, was shot after The Quickening, which is the next episode to air. So those two are out of order. And hey, uh, let's hear it for the Iconians. Of course, we first heard about them in TNG's Contagion. They get a nice big shout out here in this episode. Let's talk about guest stars. Well, welcome back to Jeffrey Combs, who this time is playing a different character than we've seen him in before. Wayun. This was LeVar's inspiration, since nobody had been quite satisfied yet with the portrayal of the Vorta. Everybody liked Jeffrey, and LeVar had just directed him in Bar Association, so the idea was hatched. Ira proposed it to Jeffrey, who was flattered, and it's such a shame that we will never see Jeffrey Combs' Wayun again, allegedly. And we get to know a handful of Jem Hadar. Well, there's the youngster of the group, eight-year-old Virakara, played by Scott Haven. Scott mostly makes the TV guest star rounds, and his appearance actually comes up very early in his career. He was a good fit for Star Trek, though, because he's got two more appearances to follow on Voyager, and then a small bit that he shot for the film First Contact. You can also catch him in recurring roles on JAG and Beverly Hills 90210. Then there's the number two, Toman Torax, played by Brian Thompson. Very recognizable character actor. Brian has been in Trek before. We mentioned him back when we covered Rules of Acquisition, and even then we pointed out that he had a couple of small Klingon roles prior to that in both TNG and the movie Star Trek Generations. He turns up on the Orville, Alienation, Mortal Kombat, The X-Files, the original Terminator movie, We'll see Brian again in Star Trek, but um, we'll definitely not see this character again. Finally, the Jem'Hadar in charge, Omet Iklan, is played by Clarence Williams III. Seriously, Clarence Williams. We have LeVar Burton again to thank for this bit of casting. The two actors have been friends for a long time, but never worked together. So here is the perfect opportunity. Clarence is a powerful actor with a long resume, and you've no doubt seen him before on TV or in feature films. Uh, the General's Daughter, The Butler, I'm Gonna Get You Sucker. He turns up on Twin Peaks, TJ Hooker, and Miami Vice. But, but, starting in 1968, for five seasons, he played Link Hayes on The Mod Squad. Solid. Dr. Bashir occupies Worf's favorite seat in the mess hall, which means everybody's day can only get better from there, right? Think again. Prologue. The Defiant is returning to DS9 after a long, holy crap, what happened? One of those huge spindly docking pylons has been blown clean off. Inside is chaos, fires, plasma leaks, Quark running around unable to find Rom, who is okay after all. A group of Jem'Hadar beamed aboard, set off an explosive, and stole a bunch of stuff while they were at it. Their stay will be short. Sisko takes Defiant out again in pursuit of the Marauders. Act 1. 
Through the wormhole, the Defiant is having trouble tracking the Jem'Hadar attackers, but they do find a warship that has been badly damaged. With its warp core soon to go critical, Sisko decides to beam aboard the seven survivors, first taking caution to exclude their weapons before they materialize on the Defiant. It's six Jem'Hadar warriors and a Vorta named Weyun. They were attacked too, by the same Jem'Hadar who attacked the station. The six warriors are just as abrasive and threatening as ever, even without their weapons, but Weyun seems interested in talking to Sisko. He's holding the upper hand over the Jem'Hadar anyway, what with his control over their Ketracel White. The story Weyun has for Sisko is fascinating once you get through the smarminess. Dominion scientists have discovered a gateway left behind by the Iconians some 200,000 years ago. It was the primary tool the Iconians used when expanding their empire by instantly having a portal to step into and conquer any other world. The Jim'Hadar, who were with the Dominion scientists, though, have rebelled and are attempting to restore this gateway on their own. If they succeed, it could be devastating for the Dominion, for the Federation, for everyone. So, Wayun proposes, they work together now to stop this insurgence and destroy the gateway. Funny, Sisko points out, the Dominion would need help controlling the Jim'Hadar, who are ostensibly under total control. Not so, says Wayun. Even with the White, their loyalty isn't perfect. Regardless, if these Jim'Hadar are successful, they overrun the Dominion in less than a year, and wormhole or not, they could put millions of soldiers on any Federation planet they choose. So, will they work together to stop the threat? Sisko agrees. Act 2. Sisko breaks the news to his staff. Oh, the Iconians, Iconians, Worf remembers Giacomo Finane. He was there way back in Season 2 of The Next Generation. Everybody is rightfully a little concerned about the idea of lying to the Jim Hadar who are on board about the reason for teaming up. They have no idea what's motivating those rogue Jim Hadar out there, and nobody had better spill the beans. Sisko invites the lead Jim Hadar, Omet Eklan, to see him just before their group meeting. Just to get a few things straight, as long as they're on the Defiant, Sisko is in charge. Got it? Oh, sure. And then when the mission is over, um, watch out. The mission briefing is pretty straightforward. They'll go to the base camp of the rebel Jem'Hadar, B-Men, and uh, fight their way through to destroy it. No easy task, since there are about 150 of them on the ground, and an orbital attack won't work. The first steps, as Worf points out, will be difficult. They'll have to take out nine guards on the ground before any of them can alert the others, Couple of Jim Hadar in the room, talking as if Worf isn't even there, say he's not much of a warrior if he's worried about that. Worf approaches the Jim Hadar second, Toman Torox, with the Klingon equivalent of Oh no you didn't. Before they can fight it out physically, Sisko and Omet Iklan call them both off, save it for the real enemy when they get to the base. Act three Training Time they're sneaking and punching and fighting and shooting and placing the explosives and... Wait, where's the third guard who should be in the simulation? 
As the team looks around for him, it's too late. They should have set the charge and gotten out of there. There was no third guard in the simulation because the team should be ready for literally any contingency. To Amet Iklan's point, the team should be prepared to sit there with the explosives even if it means they'll die. Victory is more important than life itself. Back to the simulation, while Sisko has a word with Weyun and Omet Iklan. They have got to stop showing contempt for the Starfleet crew. They have to work together. Omet Iklan even says that their teams need to be mixed between Starfleet and Jim Hadar in order to pull this off. And one other bombshell, he totally knows about the Gateway. Oh yeah, he does. And his point is that the Jim Hadar prize loyalty above all else. So those insurgents will pay with their lives. Weyun's influence here hardly matters. On the bridge, Dax is getting to know Virakara, part of her team. He clues us in a little about Jem'Hadar culture, created in birthing chambers, able to fight within three days, uh, and they don't eat and they don't sleep and they don't uh, have women. Dax, right away, spots the problem in all this, no wonder they're so angry all the time. Jem'Hadar don't live past 20 usually, and this one is only eight. Later in the mess hall, our crew are sitting around ruminating on how the Jem'Hadar do things. No food, no sleep, no other things. Then in walks the group of Jem'Hadar interrupting Weyun's dinner for a dose of the good stuff. And now they're all riding the high of some white. Toman Torox tells O'Brien he's ready to train again, even though the chief is enjoying his dinner. When he puts a hand on O'Brien, disparaging his lazy habits, Worf jumps in to defend him. You better believe this time it gets physical until Sisko and Omet Iklan can break it up. To punish their men, Omet Iklan straight up kills Toman Torox. Yeah, the buck stops right there. Then Omet Iklan waits for Sisko to punish Worf. Um, yeah, so he's confined to quarters. Ooh. With everyone dismissed, Sisko explains that his method of discipline is different. Omet Iklan says his number two served with him for three years. What he did was for the good of the unit. You are weak. You should die in his place, is how Omet Iklan responds. And he promises that at the end of the mission, he'll make sure he does. Act 4. Wayun catches Odo's attention later. He just really wants to talk to a founder, a little starstruck, actually. Odo says he'd order him to leave him alone, but before they can split up, Wayun says Odo's people want him back, and he can arrange it if Odo is ready. Odo says he's not ready, but he is ready to end their conversation. Weyun defers to the Founder's preference. Prior to the mission, Chief O'Brien and Dax confide in each other that they've recorded goodbye messages to their families just in case they don't make it back. Another thing before we start, even though he's supposed to be in his quarters, Worf takes the time to warn Sisko that he needs to watch his back Ometiklan will probably kill him when this is all over. Yeah, tell him something he doesn't know. But if he does, Worf will kill him, so all good. 
Arriving at Vandros 4, a time to hand out weapons and get ready to beam down. The Jem'Hadar waste no time making sure the phasers are set at full power. There's even time for a little speech by Ometiklan celebrating the life of being in battle. Not missing a beat, O'Brien finds a way to make a joke out of that for his own team. Beaming down, the first sign of trouble is that a dampening field has disabled all their equipment. The second sign of trouble is all the Jem'Hadar who have come out of the woods ready to fight. Act 5 and fight they do. The guards are taken out and the teens enter the base. More fighting, stabbing, slicing, and you know what? Dax is really knocking them dead. Literally. Odo even makes an appearance taking out three Jem'Hadar when he morphs from the bag that Worf has been carrying. The target is in sight. The gateway that Chief O'Brien will blow up with the charge they brought. Just then, a Jem'Hadar guard lunges toward Ometiklan, but Sisko jumps in the way to help take him out. Ometiklan is surprised that someone he threatened to kill has now risked his life to save him. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Now our teams fight their way out, and not only do they make it, but an explosion goes off signifying that the base and the gateway have been destroyed. The dampening field deactivates, meaning their weapons are back online. I love it when a plan comes together. Wayun beams down, just delighted at the success. But of course, he does want to check out the damage himself, at which point Omet Eklan vaporizes him with his phaser rifle. That was for questioning our loyalty, he says. And, hey, look, uh, they get to keep Wayun's fancy Ketrasel white dispenser. Stating that there's been enough killing today, Ometiklan lets Sisko and his crew go. The Jem'Hadar will remain on Vandros 4 to hunt down anyone else who is disloyal, but don't get the warm fuzzies just yet. Ometiklan says they'll be enemies the next time they meet. The end. My first three initial responses to that wonderful synopsis, John. One. <laughs> <laughs> plus plus one, you. you get you get a plus one for quoting John Hannibal Smith from the A Team, Mr. George yes. Papard. Yes, the the great leader he so was. So you have two, yeah. and I have two performed sound bites, so that we are not in licensing jeopardy here. These are performed. Okay. Dun yeah. dun 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 dun, because that's kind of like the whole <laughs> feeling of that, and then sure, right. To get totally. into the spirit yeah. of our of our observations, may I perform, if you will, a a little titty mm. from TOS? Oh sure. Because <laughs> come on, come on, right? Just a lot, a of lot fighting. of fighting. Just a lot of physical hand hand. Yeah, which. You know, I'm going to have a little bit of uh, uh, extra trivia on that a little later oh, in the show. But we did but yeah, do the trivia. The, this was an uh, no, 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 no. We got Ooh. extra trivia. We got trivia that lines up with a comment later. So I saved it just for you mm. and for our listeners. But Excellent. yeah, <laughs> so well, well, let's pick apart the fun stuff here. There's a lot of fun stuff. Worf, adorable Worf. He's got a special chair. Mm-hmm. Isn't that nice? He's got his place that he likes in the mess hall. So, uh, and that was kind of a funny bit. I mean, it was sort of like the whole logic behind let the Wookiee win. <laughs> you know, it reminded I me I thought of when that. Bashir looked at him and he said, um, 
Commander Worf. I thought he was going to stick, you know, like stand his ground. I I thought so too for yeah. a second. I thought he was, and Worf would just be decent about it and go around yeah. and the chair. But yeah. you know, also you know, being Worf, you know, Worf being kind of like the always uh, the warrior and and always kind of like being on guard. It does make sense that he chooses like the one seat that his back is protected because he's back up against the wall, but he can see like the entirety of the room. There's like um, mm-hmm. there's a scene oh, in yeah. this great movie, the um, the movie Ronin with Robert De Niro, where he says, "Lady." I don't walk into a room I can't walk out of, right? It's just kind of like that, that right. warrior's code, <laughs> you know, just like, uh, even though yeah. these are all my people, I still got to see who's coming through the door. Smart. You know, one smart. thing I thought, especially tough, especially talking about tough warrior people. When we, at, at the beginning of the episode, we see the, the pylon of Deep Space Nine uh, completely destroyed and there's chaos ensues and Kira's nursing a, an arm covered with plasma burns, but she still has the steel yeah. and the composure to give Cisco a complete and perfect briefing. I noticed that. I, I was really impressed. Unless this was just a bad idea. Like she has enough painkillers. Mm-hmm. Then she's just not paying attention. And she keeps bumping that <laughs> into a bulkhead or something. No, no, no. Don't worry about it. Don't I mean, I'll walk into fine. like the corner of a table. I'll be like, oh my God, the world is ending. You know, and now she's like. <laughs> I can't carry on. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't carry I don't on. even know what's going on. Yeah. Oh my gosh, this table took me out. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, there are so many good moments in this. And I love that first meeting between Cisco and Weyoun. It's just magnificent. And I love Weyoun's first impulse uh, to offer Cisco to just run the entire Federation. It was like Ming saying to Flash he can rule over Earth if he wants. It's like, yeah, just imagine it. Yeah, you know, you, you'll rule over everybody. Of course, they, they won't be the same people you remember. They'll be satisfied with less. I have to ask you a question. But yeah, how long have you been wanting to like drop in a Flash Gordon reference? Oh, always, always. I'm shocked that it's taken us what 23 episodes to get there. I promise. I'll drop in oh, 10 so more funny. by the end of the year. So, <laughs> but So great, great moment reminded me of that. Uh, although it was kind of strange that. Cisco, the way he's walking around that room and and Wayun spouting off, he's just sort of throwing around that phaser rifle like it's nothing, like he's like he's just holding a notebook or something. Was, like that 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 is a weapon, sir. Please treat it with some reference uh, uh, deference. Well, it's a good thing respect. it's not the same one that Kira was showing Zial, or else all of the doors and hinges would yeah. have started falling apart. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> At least they fixed that. Yeah. Some some moments of levity. Uh, O'Brien making up that quip about the get to know you buffet after mm. the meeting. Very nice, and then and Dax about forgetting her dress uniform. Just they found the right moments here that were understated. They were character driven. It wasn't just like and now we need a joke. You know, I, I thought I like that scene, but there's a scene like basically the cut right after Dax says what she says. And it's almost as if like uh, Cisco was just, he, he almost has this attitude like, I don't want to hear any of this anymore. I'm too serious right now. But he's not walking off the Defiant he's, he, or the Defiance Bridge. He's walking, he's in his quarters walking towards the door. It's just, a, it's a weird cut, yes. don't you think? I, so I noticed that and I actually, I went back and rewatched it because I thought, I thought the same thing that you did at the time. I, and I was like, wait, is is LeVar here or an editor trying to be clever and do a match shot 
of Cisco walking away from mm-hmm. them, and then you cut to the same shot in his quarter. But it's not. You don't have that. It was a weird choice. I, either way, that yeah. wouldn't work. So somebody was just trying to be super efficient with the edit, or they just didn't have a reference shot to go back to. It's just one of those kind of shots where I had to rewind a couple times and like, am I in the same scene or am I in a different scene? And when, Mm -hmm. obviously, when he saw Wayun or Khan come through the door, I'm like, oh, I'm in a completely different scene. Yeah, I did the same thing. I I had, I rewound that a couple of times. It's like, this doesn't make sense. One thing that I'm really, really liking more and more and more as I see the chief, um, or at least a, having Combs Meany's lines written, I really, really like how he just speaks his mind all the time, all the time. And I know that he's not a commissioned officer. He's a non-commissioned officer, but he's still an honest and genuine person. And when Worf said, no, that the defiant patrolling Deep Space Nine would just be a waste of everyone's time and the defiance resources, the chief says, well, tell that to the people who are living there that, you know, of, of whom many have just died because the Defiant was an yeah. on patrol. I mean, he keeps it real, right? Right. And and I totally. love that freshness totally. about that. He's like, he sees it from the other side. And, and the more that I see him say lines like this, the more I really respect just kind of like where he's coming from. Like, you know what? It's all well and good that you can say this from kind of like the lofty uh, position of an officer. But when you come down to where we are, yeah. it's like my wife and my daughter may be on this station and they may have been in a pylon. Quark's brother, Rom, who he was concerned about, was working on that upper pylon. But it would have been nice to have like the most heavily armed fighter or ship in the Federation patrolling the station. So, you know, yeah. hear out at least a different point of view. Right. No, I totally agree. And and they make those moments they make those moments genuine where it's not just sort of creating some antagonism for for no good reason. Like it actually just illustrates the point. It illustrates the problem mm-hmm. that they're in. Uh, and I like that they use O'Brien for that. Often. So what's up with Transport Protocol Five? Have we seen that before? <laughs> no, but I say use I it all it. the time. I totally dig I mean, it. Look, if you don't know who's coming in, just use it. That should just be a default. I mean, it's like setting. Transport Protocol Ten, <laughs> just nudity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then let's use that one from time I mean, to you time, know, too. Like, <laughs> don't worry about, like, like the uniforms can't be weaponized. The, their weapons are completely useless. Uh, just transport Protocol 10, you know, and bring in some robes. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's okay. Yeah, right. That's good Good policy. Yeah. There's an Odo line that I like here. He, he tells one of the Jimadara, I'm not God and neither are the founders. The sooner you realize that, the better off you'll be. I just, man... My hat is off to Odo. Just wreck their entire philosophy and point of view. Just just do it in as few sentences as possible. Good for you, man. So do you think when he says something like that, the Jemadar, like, he's a god, so I don't even really listen to him because I'm too intimidated because he's a god? Oh, yeah. See, this is difficult. It's kind of the difficulty of the conversation he was having with Wei Yun. It's like... If the thing that you worship says, I am not a thing to worship, stop worshiping me, <laughs> how do you right. how do you justify right. my that? Whole, my entire existence is based yeah. on worshiping you. So I don't yeah. understand all of this. It's almost kind of like I need to turn my brain off so that it doesn't implode with the reverse logic that you're kind of <laughs> you're, you're seeding into, right. my, into right. my thoughts. Yes. One exactly. of the things, though, in this episode I, I found a little 
challenging. The Jem'Hadar and kind of like their their code of loyalty and how that's just kind of like Klingon honor. It's kind of used when needed. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to make this like too much of a sticking point. But to be honest, the Jem'Hadar say that they are bred for a specific purpose and their loyalty is unwavering to the, well, at least to the founders and, and via through their minions, the Vorta. So why is it that mm. the Vorta, in this case, Wayun, why is he always getting so much lip from Ometaklan? Yeah, see, that that is a good question. And I'm glad that Wayun has that line about their system being a little imperfect, because you, you've got to get that out there at some point. But it almost seems like, you know, an error in the code somewhere along. Maybe the more of them that they make, there's bound to be some anomaly mm. in there where the the Jem'Hadar are not as loyal as maybe they thought but um yeah it's sort of a conundrum it's like we have to make them tough we have to make them smart enough to follow orders and go do these things and and use their wits sometimes to get themselves out of a situation but did we give them enough autonomy or so much autonomy, rather, that then they can start to act on their own and against us. It actually it says something about the founders and about the Vorta to be that maybe short-sighted. Maybe it says something about us, that, you know, you keep building weapons that you think are stronger and smarter, eventually they will turn mm -hmm. on you. I mean, that goes all the way back yeah. to when we were talking about Hippocratic Oath, you know, when when Bashir and O'Brien, you know, they crash land on the planet and they're dealing with that, that, uh, I guess that cell of Jem'Hadar and some of them are learning to be independent and because they can refuse, or at least that one commander or the first could refuse the Ketracel White's, uh, addiction. And, uh, I, I think yeah. that would have been neat to have seen something like that at play here, but we'll, we'll get to the discussion on that one. You know, that that's interesting. If they had introduced something like that, where, oh, look, you've got another anomaly here where we don't understand why, but maybe he doesn't right. need the white. Maybe, yeah, maybe there's yeah. something else going on. Hey, uh, look, I have to point it out. We have that Star Trek trope of the long turbo lift ride. Now, now of course, at least Cisco stopped the trip at some point in order to have a conversation. But literally, when I saw that scene, I went back and I looked up the deck plans for the Defiant to make sense out of what he was saying. They were going from the engine room to deck five. I mean, that was taking forever to mm -hmm. begin with. <laughs> and, you know, and I'm looking at the deck plans. Wait, does this even have five decks? Where <laughs> are they going? This is not a big ship, and this is taking a long time. I think I counted like eight or nine swooshes with the uh, with the light effect that they use in the... Uh, in the turbo lift to show that you're changing mm -hmm. floors. And I was like, no, they, they just, they have gone way past. It's like Willy Wonka's elevator <laughs> at this point just shoots right out of the building and there's somewhere else. Um, it was, uh, it, since we've talked about some stylistic things, I was surprised that they went handheld for that scene in the turbo lift. Now I kind of understand it's a small space. It's three people standing and talking. So you add a little mm -hmm. bit of life to that scene but it just seemed a little weird because the closer you get with a handheld 
the more jarring it's going to be. And handheld isn't something we see a lot of in Star Trek unless it's being used for a specific dramatic effect, like an action scene or something. Well, I mean, it could like have been that. just because in, in, to make some, like you know three talking heads more interesting. You know, because sometimes a handheld gives you that added sense of paranoia because you are, um, mm-hmm. are are using it in more of an extreme fashion with a little bit more of an organic movement. So, and I think that's what they wanted to start building in this scene is kind of like the this um, uh, this escalation between uh, Omataklan and Wayun with with uh, Cisco in the middle of it, saying like, "Oh, this is go- just going to go badly. It's just going to go south so fast." Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, there's a lesson that could have been learned a few episodes ago when Worf beat down Chapak about, you know, when he got under his skin during Worf's briefing. I wanted Worf to grow from that point, but there was a scene in this episode where uh, the, the second of the Jem'Hadar starts teasing him and starts a fight which causes mm-hmm. his death? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a scene designed to say more about the Jem'Hadar than it does about Worf, but come on, Worf. Like but, stop. Wait, stop but is it? But I mean, but but is time. it though? I mean, I I I agree that the the yeah. you know the the consequence that the Jem Hadar when they disobey orders, which I have plenty to say about later, is part of that scene. But it's it's just every single time Worf gets teased or trolled or his his ire gets up in hackles. He lashes out. I'm like, come on, man, you're Starfleet. I mean, what what part of this haven't you not learned yet? Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. He, and you're an officer. On, and you're the you're the first officer. You're the XO of the Defiant. So aren't you supposed yeah. to be leading by example? <laughs> right. It just, it, right. Uh... <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Um no, I, 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 it, he needs to learn. The guy needs to grow. He's been around long enough. Um, let's see. I, I love that scene between Dax and uh, Vera Kara uh, and that follow-up in the mess hall. Like, it's Dax who brings up the Klingon women and O'Brien who gives that little uh, smirk about them being fun yeah. at parties. Uh, yet, yet here's Worf being the most conservative among Klingons, just never allows himself to have fun. He's not a partier like the others that we've met. Literally, here's O'Brien and Dax going like, Klingon women, right? And Worf just like, uh, they they fight a yeah. lot. <laughs> you know, they're tough warriors. Shut up. Mud <laughs> I mean, meat wow. stick. Way to make him uncomfortable. Right? Yeah, exactly. I like that conversation too. I really <laughs> like that, the... Um... The byplay between uh, Dax and uh, Virat Kara. I just thought that was nice. It doesn't necessarily mean that that scene humanizes the Jem'Hadar. It just kind of gives them both, at least they explore their different idealisms, which was nice. Um, One of the things, though, that kind of struck me funny is that the training sequence when they're trying to to time and train, uh, infiltrating the Jem'Hadar base that has the Iconian transporter, that's a lot of like you're really trying to sell it when you're going full speed 100% sparring when you're taking out like your own allies during the training session and firing stun energy at them. Yeah. Like I get the Jem Hadar, yeah. but right. I mean Worf isn't pulling any punches. I mean he knocks people out, he knocks people down. Yeah. That's like Yeah. Is that in the spirit of training or do they have to make it as real as possible? I mean what's that all about? I 
yeah, I, I maybe that's just it. Maybe maybe they like it. <laughs> maybe they just they're like, no, we really we prefer to do yeah. it this way. Just come on, come at us right. with all you got. It's what we live for. Literally, it's that's what true, we that's live true. for. <laughs> the other thing that they live for is the white, and I love Wayun's delivery in the mess hall when he's handing <laughs> out to them. He's so uninterested. Blah blah blah. May it keep you strong. I know. <laughs> it's just. God, that's so good. I don't think uh, we've talked enough about like how amazing Jeffrey Combs just inhabited Wayun, right? I, he's so good. Yeah. So and you're good. right. He's yeah. just like, okay, um, whatevs. <laughs> um, here's your white. Um, he's done this incantation a right. million times. But that so. also goes to the point yeah. of what I was talking about earlier where there is kind of a, a level of loss of control or disrespect that the Jem'Hadar have, at least with uh, the Vorta, not necessarily the founders. Because, again, Ometeklan comes up to Wayun and gives him lip. It's like, it's time for the white. Right? And, and, and yeah. Wayun's like, um, I'll tell you when it's time. But Ometeklan has the audacity to initiate that conversation. So where does that come from if the Jem'Hadar are these 100% purebred, loyal to the letter warrior clones. You know, that's just kind of like, I'll, yeah. I'll get to that later on in the discussion. One of the things I, I, I did think was funny is, right. is when, when you were, we were talking about that conversation with, with Odo and Worf and Dax, I love it when Worf said, what's the point of doing battle if you can't enjoy the fruits of victory? And Brian goes, you mean sleep? I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> Oh, good. That, yeah, there were some terrific lines uh, peppered throughout this. And um, let's see, a couple of just last observations here. I'm glad that we finally address how often Starfleet personnel record a goodbye message. Because I had that question way back with Tasha Yar in Skin of Evil when she gets eaten by the uh, oil slick. Um, so the chief apparently does it every time before he goes into battle. Um, so, you know, he he doesn't need to do it again this time maybe he could just keep using the same one over and over if he wanted to because Dax says no you're going to live a long time uh, until maybe the one that he doesn't we'll, we'll try not to think about that um, I love O'Brien's pep talk that's to his so team, funny <laughs> which was so funny and excellent I'm alive and I intend to stay that way except for you the dude who definitely we have not seen before and will not see again so that was well placed and um but there are oh did you notice there were some great shots in the gateway mm -hmm. the iconian gateway he had uh some landscapes some matte paintings that we've seen before bajor cardassia prime even the eiffel tower so elisa Jemhadar, maybe maybe they have taste if they're going to conquer earth how nice to see some Jem'Hadar and starfleet team up and show each other trust and respect surely that must be the point of discussion for this episode talk to the deaf in a moment but right now we'll go to the commercial break 
Uh, you've heard us talk about Mint Mobile, about all the benefits of joining Mint Mobile. First and foremost, cutting your bill down to 15 bucks a month because you're avoiding paying all that overhead and all that expensive marketing that the big carriers are passing on to you. We've talked about the other benefits, like if you're not 100% satisfied, getting your money back. But Norman, what I want to talk to you about today is the user experience because you've been using Mint Mobile and I want to know how you found it. Well, I, my experience with Mint Mobile has actually been incredibly positive. One of the things that uh, a lot of us are doing like, during this COVID-19 crisis is that we're taking a look at our personal finances. I mean, it's only really responsible for us to do so. And in doing so, we're taking a look at our monthly budgets and how we can maximize you know, our dollars in terms of our monthly spending. So when I did that and I took a look at my monthly expenses for my previous character, I said, you know, I think I'm paying a little bit too much. Then I took a look at Mint Mobile, and the two things that I really, really loved at the very beginning, one, I could choose the data plan that I wanted because I knew exactly how much data that I was using on a monthly basis, and two, how incredibly easy it was to be able to manage that through the use of the Mint Mobile app because that's something that you know we are, we are all smartphone users, and it's nice to be able to have that information kind of at a moment's notice. I did the entire process online through the app, and it was probably the smoothest process that I have ever encountered without an actual sales representative. I was sent my SIM card through the mail, through the app. I was sent all the information that I needed, and my account was carried over from my previous server to this server very smoothly. It was probably one of the best experiences that I've had as a customer with this type of data plan um, transfer. So... If I can do it, believe me, anybody can do it. <laughs> well, there you go. And you got to keep your phone, you got to keep your number, and you cut your cell phone bill down by a considerable margin. And remember, you can do that too. And if you're not satisfied, you've got a seven-day money-back guarantee. So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, and to get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash missionlog. That's mintmobile.com slash mission log. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash mission log. All right, Norman. So starting to pick apart this action heavy episode of uh, Deep Space Nine to the death. Trying to look for kind of threads ideas here. Uh, the first one that I thought of the enemy of the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, but I, I don't know at the end of the show here, do we really feel like, uh, do we really feel like Omete Klan and, uh, Cisco are friends? I mean, they're not friends, but they found maybe a little mutual respect, but it's the kind of respect that says, okay, we're done with that. Don't let me ever see you again. I, I don't know. Where do you think we're left with this? Because the intent is to make the Jim Hadar terrifying, brutal, vicious, and violent. But we still come away with some understanding. Like you pointed out, we get these things that sort of, quote unquote, humanize them mm. a wee bit. Well, I mean, there is a soft detente, if you will, between the Jim Hadar that are on the Defiant and the Jem'Hadar that we know that are being these, these brutal clone soldier warriors uh, that are part of the Dominion's arsenal. And 
one of the things that it's really difficult for me to reconcile is the culture of the Jem'Hadar. Because I'm not exactly sure if the enemy of my enemy is my friend is applicable here because mm-hmm. they're... That's that's kind of like an algebraic term that uh, allows certain parties to at least understand each other, if not work well together. Now they do, but at the same time, though, at the end, it's only Cisco's action of nearly sacrificing himself to save a Metaclon that changes that equation. Because mm, right. if it weren't for that, a Metaclon would have found a way during the course of that entire melee to try and assassinate Cisco. But Cisco showed him another way, which means that somewhere along the line, these are independent thinking and very intelligent beings, creatures that understand their existence. They understand their importance. They understand like what their their purpose is. But the thing is, what kind of breaks this argument is Hippocratic Oath. When we go all the way back to Hippocratic Oath with yeah. that particular first, again, ignoring the effects of the Ketracel white and being able to try and create a new existence for the Jem'Hadar. So where are we with Jem'Hadar? I'm trying to find some consistency here. Well, all right. So I was about to ask you about that because this gets around to sort of the, uh, the presiding uh, driving force of the Jem'Hadar, which is their loyalty. I was going to ask you in that last scene where Ometaclan sort of allows Cisco to live after Cisco saved his life. What was it that Ometaclan recognized in Cisco or or accepted in Cisco? Was it the loyalty to the mission? Was it loyalty to him? Because Cisco's in charge. He doesn't mm-hmm. have to be loyal to Ometaclan. So I'm wondering, is loyalty in the Jem'Hadar sense of the word, is it one of these malleable things the way that honor is to Klingons? So Jem'Hadar can use this word loyalty, but they still seemingly can logic their way into killing whomever they want, whenever they want. They will gladly hunt and kill each other. Although would it have been just as easy for a Jem'Hadar to say, I'm loyal to the other Jem'Hadar who are doing this thing because they're like me. Uh, Or, you know, so there really is any way to go with this. I just wonder if it's that, is it that malleable of a construct for them? that at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. They're still, go- they're still going to justify their actions. They're just going to put words around it the way that Klingons put a word like honor around something or Vulcans put logic around something. It's interesting that you bring up kind of like these three different philosophies because we have uh, critiqued in the past kind of like the Vulcans overuse of logic to get them out of certain situations and the Klingons overuse of honor to get them out of those similar situations that are relative to Klingon honor. But in this case, I think that with Ometaclon at least being the first of this Jem'Hadar cell, the loyalty is to the warrior's code, I think. The loyalty is to whatever, whatever the course of action that you take, you're taking it in the sense of like their their chant that they did before they left the Defiant. You know, it's like, we are already dead. We are reclaiming our lives because victory is life. And therefore, if we reclaim our lives, then we reclaim victory. And Cisco throwing himself in front of that blade, and he took that blow for Metaclon, basically said, 
this guy f- does not fear death. And in not fearing death, he reclaims victory. And I think that to the Jem'Hadar, at least in the sense that this soft, you know, well-fed, well-rested uh, Starfleet officer, he took what could have been a lethal blow for me, which means that he is like us. He's hard. He's ready to die. He's ready to reclaim victory through mm. this action. And in some way, I think that the Jem'Hadar respect that. So they've got respect somewhere buried in there. But that respect is interesting, though. It does not extend to somebody like Wayun. So they're, they're loyal to Wayun because they need something out of him. They're loyal to the people who are giving them orders. But clearly, they don't respect him. Clearly, the uh, Ometaklan can come away with a lot more respect for a guy like Cisco than he can the person who's actually in ch- quote unquote in charge. I think there is kind of a trope when it comes to soldiers on the ground, the leather on the ground, the boots on the ground, and them eating the same dirt versus, say, the officers who have been disassociated with the the grittiness and the cruelty of actual war you see this in military movies all the time where you have kind of like these uh these uh, academy graduated officers that can't connect with the men in the field then you have that one character the sergeant or the sarge right that mm-hmm. can live in both worlds that's cisco cisco is living in both worlds where he understands how to get into the grunt mentality like the Jem'Hadar, but also understands the political machinations of what Wayun's doing with his influence over the Jem'Hadar and the Ketrasol White. So him proving that he can get into the mud and the muck and the blood by working, you know, or, or by taking that attack uh, for Ometaklan just proves to those guys that, or proves to those guys, the Jem'Hadar, that he's a soldier. He knows, yeah. you know, he knows how to fight and he doesn't have the pretense of the officer on high who only gives commands. And I think that's where yeah. Cisco gets his the respect. And interesting because he had to he had to earn that respect back after that scene in the mess hall where he had the audacity to not kill Worf. <laughs> yeah, right. <You> know? yeah. <laughs> such a such a faux pas. Yeah. So, John, one of the issues that I have, and it's very, very difficult for me to try and uh, try and get my wrap my head around, is there's a scene with, and you brought this up before. It's the scene of the turbo lift with Wayun, Ametaklan, and and Cisco talking about the gateway and talking about how the Vorta have kind of tried to kept this information from them, and the the Jem'Hadar that are on Vendras for who have secured the um, the gateway, the technology, and have rebelled against what we know about the Jem'Hadar. If the Jem'Hadar are created, bred, cloned, and kept loyal through the Ketracel White, then why are we seeing all of these different examples of the Jem'Hadar showing their own initiative and being not these subservient and completely 100% loyal to a fault beings. 
Why are they giving Wayun such resistance to this? I don't understand that. I, you know, I, I don't know if they thought this much about it or in these specific terms at the time when they were writing this, but I, I'm honestly going to start thinking about the Jem'Hadar as metaphoric for our own sort of development of weapons and our own types of arms race. You know, we, we have incredible technologies at our fingertips. We, we have drones in the air any second of the day in any number of countries where we would like that to happen, that with the push of a button, we can simply take out a target. Um, and it, it sort of takes the it takes the messiness of war out of our hands. The founders and the uh, the Vorta through them, you know, have figured out a way to do this. They they figured out a way to not get their hands dirty by exacting their incredible oppression throughout the Gamma Quadrant. They get to just give the orders, sit back dole out the Ketracel white and think, well, you know, might is right. So the, this is how it always has been for 2,000 years, as Wayun points out, and that's how it will be for long after the Federation is gone. But there is a, there, there's sort of a, a message of warning baked into this, which is the more advanced you make your weapons, the more clean you make your technology, the more you remove yourself from this process, the easier that it gets, the much higher the chances are that that thing that you created will turn around and absolutely bite you in the butt. That thing isn't perfect. And especially it's not perfect if it's the thing that you designed to be brutal and vicious and unfeeling and solely with the ability to kill. Mm -hmm. They're slaves. The Jem'Hadar are a slave race. And they're, they're built to just go do this nasty thing that nobody else wants to do. Um, they are the blunt instrument, as it were. But they've made this blunt instrument with more and more refined abilities and, and more and more refined uh, sort of intelligence enough to fight and think their way out of a situation that it's inevitable, absolutely inevitable, that some of them would figure out what's up at some point, even if it's by accident, even if we don't know uh, from Hippocratic Oath what it was that made that one able to live without Ketracel White. Could have been a genetic thing, could have been an effect from the planet. At the end of that episode, we actually don't know. But what's important from that is like, oh, wait, this is where it starts. As soon as one of them learns I am something beyond what I am told I am, watch out. Mm -hmm. There is never too much preparation when approaching Vandress 4, because Cisco and his team don't want to be a fool. Here and now, John and Norman will discuss the morals of the show and give me the reason it's so amazing.
So at the end of all of our mission logs, we take a look at what we've discussed, and especially with an episode like this, which has a lot of complexity to it, we take a look at what we can decipher for messages and morals and meanings and try and see how this and how our filter of mission log can lead us through the complexity of what's being said here. So John, what did you think about this episode? Did it hold up? And does it fulfill your expectations of what we believe should be seen in mission log? You know, I have to say uh, that we've had a, a run of a few episodes where either I've felt disappointed in the production, disappointed in the story that they've told, or I've felt kind of outraged by this just you know, I've described it as the producers sort of thumbing their nose at Star Trek, making sure that you and the audience know, hey, we're not making the same thing you saw before. We're here to mix it up. Uh, this episode, I really enjoyed it. I really liked it. And for a lot of reasons, because it is a straight up action story. Well, it's mostly the prelude to action, but they they earn it. They they build that up quite a bit. So you get the action at the end. Um it happens to serve the overall story because you have this interplay between the Maquis and the Vorta and what's going on at the station and, and all of that. Um, it happens to tie in a little bit of Star Trek mythology, uh, what with the Iconians, and I thought that was fun. And it actually leaves us, if not with specific messages, it leaves us with some ideas. At least we get to ponder what was going on with the Jem Hadar, what was going on with our team. So that there are some ideas in here. For me, it fires on all cylinders. And and we're not asking Avery Brooks to do anything crazy, so he's good here too. He's just got great, solid moments throughout, nothing that took me out of the story. Now, the pacing is off, and you can tell. There is a lot of buildup for a very short fight scene which seemed odd to me when I watched it. And then here's where I'm saving that bit of trivia for you. I read later that the show had been cut considerably because of the violence. And it wasn't that they released it and then the broadcaster cut it. No, no, no. This was from the production. This was Rick Berman, et cetera, saying like, yeah, we can't just have the wholesale slaughter of like 50 more Maquis or, or mm -hmm. uh, 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 54 uh, Jim Hadar as we go along, we can't do that. So it got cut quite a bit. And there were people on the staff like Ira, like Robert Hewitt Wolf, who just said, oh, this is going to throw off the pacing. It's going to look weird. Even at the time, Terry Farrell is like, you know, taking out 10 of these guys at once. And she's saying, really? Am I, <laughs> is, this, is this really what I'm doing here? So that did throw off how we experience that end scene would we have looked at this a different way if they'd kept in all that violence? Would we have said, oh, well, they really went over the top here? I, I don't know. But it does at least throw off the pacing, kind of the feel of this. That said, if that's the, the only failure of the show, I think the show really works. I think I, I really enjoyed this episode every time I watched it. How about you? Well, man, I enjoyed it a lot too. But uh, one of the caveats that I need to you know, just to kind of bring up to be completely honest is that I've enjoyed every single episode of Deep Space Nine, some more than others, with 
this one particular caveat in place, and that is from an academic standpoint and from a production standpoint. I think that Deep Space Nine is incredibly well produced. I think I have said that about every single episode that I have reviewed so far in my tenure on, on Mission Log. The acting has been incredibly good, um, some better than most. And again, this is just very much of an academic review of the acting's good, the production's good, the the special effects are good, the prop design, costume design, all of it is above board. However, one of the things that I, I struggle with sometimes with some episodes are the the obvious morals or meanings or messages that usually you can kind of sniff out really quickly at the beginning of say a non-serialized series say the the original series or the next generation because those are episodic they have to kind of be a little bit more overt in their messaging uh, regarding what those writers wanted to convey at the time but since this is uh, more serialized territory it's a little bit more difficult to try and mine that and try and find that especially for for our purposes here on mission log. Now, that being said, I don't think that that's, that's not there in this episode. It was just a little bit more difficult for me to see, um, without subsequent, subsequent viewings, the more and more and more I watched it, the more I saw that there were morals and meanings and messages. And we'll get to that in, in, in one second, but it's just not quite as obvious. And maybe that's the point. But from a, an execution standpoint, again, another very well-executed story from all of the academic reasons why this would be good, as opposed to more of the spiritual or um, emotionally grabbing moments that I would like. Okay. All right. Well, see, you leading with that then makes me curious about where you're going to land on your roles, meanings, and messages. Because I, as I said before, I don't think this is an episode that, to me, didn't have the, in, in mission log terms, the bonk bonk on the head moment or the you see to me moment. But I think there are ideas here that were good. Now, something that I question, um, a Jim Hadar saying, I think there's been enough killing for one day. Is that a very Jim Hadar thing to say? Probably not. But maybe we get to pat ourselves on the back and say, well, doing something with honesty and integrity actually rubs off on somebody else. So maybe we misjudged our enemy at that point. I don't know if the thread here of working with one's enemy is necessarily a message here, but but it is a lesson in compromise and adaptability for the crew. Uh, for our crew, which was cool to see. The most important thing about it, though, is that I, I look at this episode, maybe that's why I love it so much. Our crew, they approach this in a way that they do their best. They don't compromise their morals, their integrity. They do things with honor and, and not just the Klingon version where you say <laughs> something is with honor just because you say it is. No, they actually behave honorably. And at no point in this episode do we need a speech about how terrible Starfleet is or how terrible and mismanaged and and problematic uh, the Federation is. No, no, no. We just have a job here. 
to do with dignity, to do with integrity, and we try to meet the enemy in a place to find some compromise. I think all of that is wonderful. That's sort of what I've been waiting for. And we we dig into the motivations for these warriors a bit. And, and I think if there's something to pull out of that, blind loyalty is wrong, just like blind adherence to something with the quote-unquote honor, as we've seen, can be a minefield as well. But those are interesting ideas because we we look at species like the Jem'Hadar, like the Klingons, or like the Vulcans with their extreme use of logic, and we go, okay, as humans, we can't fall into the trap of just constantly chasing one ideal and constantly trying to wrap ourselves around that one ideal. That that will no doubt lead to a problem. So I think all of those can get explored here, even if there's not a beat-you-on-the-head moment. Um, but what about you? you? You said that you found some morals, meanings, messages here the more you watched it. Well, I mean, fairly similar to you, John. And one of the things that I love about not comparing notes before we we get on the air <laughs> right. is that, you know, sometimes we'll actually reach a very similar uh, conclusion. And if there is one message that I come away uh, with from this episode is that there's a line that Cisco won't cross. There's a line that is a code of honor and a line of ethics when he's wearing the Starfleet uniform. He knows that he's dealing with the Gemtar. He knows that he's dealing with this brutal and savage cell of an ally in the Jem'Hadar, but he won't sacrifice his own ethics, um, even at the sake of his own life. And that's something that I think that won Omedeklan over in the end is that when Cisco got in the way of Omedeklan being wounded or could have been severely wounded or killed, it's because Cisco believed that's the right thing to do. That's what soldiers do. They look out for each other. They have each other's backs. And that's a code of honor amongst soldiers. So um, going with that line, there is a code of honor element at play in this episode. The Jem'Hadar have their own warrior's code. Worf has his own warrior's code. But in my opinion, the only real and clear code of honor that is being addressed here and enforced overall is Cisco's. And maybe that's the message. Maybe that's the message to maintain Starfleet's code of honor no matter the cost whether it's personal and without compromise. That is what Starfleet is about. It's about setting the example and being the example, no matter what happens. And maybe that's kind of like where I interpret, because sometimes we don't talk about the interpretation of the title and how it, it, it applies to the episode. But for me, I was thinking about this. I'm like, to the death. It's a very extreme title when you really think about it. To the death. But... When you really uh, apply it to what's happening in the context of this episode, Cisco and his crew and the Jem'Hadar, they both are committed to fighting to the death for this mission, but under different pretenses. The Jem'Hadar want to die because they're fighting to reclaim what they've already forfeit, and then victory is life. So if they win, they reclaim their life because they've already committed to being dead. But Cisco kind of see, I mean, they obviously see it a differently, a differently. And Cisco and his team want to fight because they have to protect the Federation citizens. And the Federation citizens would be under threat of a Jem'Hadar if they ever got control of that technology that would put the entire galaxy under the boot of that Jem'Hadar, um, kind of like the, that renegade faction of the Jem'Hadar. So... And completely uh, under um, breaking the control of the founders. So I think that that's just something that's 
it, it, it struck me as being not completely overt in terms of a moral or meaning or message, but something that I found that was a little bit more prevalent in uh, subsequent viewings. I just want to point out two things that are very important with what you just said, Norman. Uh, one is that, yes, totally agree. There's a very Star Trek thing here about living up to your moral code, living up to those principles. The other thing is that you said code of honor at least three times. I do not want people to have flashbacks to the end of season <laughs> two of The Next Generation. Please, we're talking about that in a very different context. I'm going to watch that episode again, and I'm going to make a case for it and make it stick, just like a few other episodes that I love that everybody hates. Your funeral, buddy. <laughs> Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, well, we would appreciate that. You can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. Enjoy all the great Roddenberry podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com, where you'll find Women at War, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and shabam shabam and for more star trek news and discussion be sure to visit trekmovie.com on the next mission log the quickening some of the music for mission log provided by warp 11 online at warp11.com As we wrap up this mission, let's take a moment to remember Wayun, and, oh yes, the defiant crew members who didn't even get names. I'm sure their families will get a letter or a fruit basket from Cisco. End transmission. podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network